You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. There's something wrong with me. Surprise, surprise. I think I've got a Captain Beefheart recessive gene. I've definitely got Bob Dylan antigens. I don't... I, I actively dislike Bob Dylan. I've had to be cut down from a tree for, for having to, for saying so. In the past, luckily someone was handy with a, a Stanley knife. Um, but yeah, I'm being honest with you. But it's, it's like, oh, I don't know, with Captain Beefheart, he's one of the most lauded um, composer musicians ever. He's a difficult listen for many. He's not a top 40er by any means. But go to the website uh, for Captain Beefheart and just look at influences. Oh, my goodness. The list, I have not seen a longer one. So if you can't stand him, um, you've got a lot of influential people to argue with. And I've never really got him. It's not like I really dislike him. I've never, never really got, oh, gosh, yes, you're amazing and marvellous. Never really got that. Anyway. Uh, listening this week, some of the tunes actually really did turn me on. So maybe it's a turning point. Captain Beefheart, Shiny Beast will be reviewed turning 40. That'll be after 11. Next up, though, we go to the New Zealand International Film Festival and New Zealand art house movie called Stray. Find out all about it. Ah. Weekend Variety Wireless. The New Zealand International Film Festival, uh, marvellous thing. I've got a program. It's always lovely to have a physical program in your hand. We'll be showcasing plenty of the films that are going to be on at the festival throughout, and we're doing that right now. There's a New Zealand movie called Stray. The director and producer, for the most part, is Dustin Fenley, and he's jettisoning two E's in the pronunciation there. If you want to look him up, uh, it's F-E-N-E-L-E-Y. So Dustin Fenley, director of Stray, welcome along. Thank you. Have you read the blurb in the International Film Festival program about what your movie is about? I did. You did. Does it say what's inside? Uh, yes, it's quite an You're apt. happy with the blurb? Yeah, I'm very happy with the blurb. Oh, brilliant. Couldn't have written it better myself. Okay, good. I tried. No, no. Because it's a hard job, and it's one thing I notice probably more than anything else at film festivals, when you get a, a blurb about something, you go, oh, it might be interesting. You go watch it, and you go, holy crap. <laughs> and uh, then you think, how would I write a blurb about it? And it's really hard to do, isn't it? To yeah. get across what the experience is of the thing inside. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a beautiful write-up and it's very accurate to the film we made. A young man is on parole after serving time for attempting to murder the man who killed his girlfriend in a hit-and-run. A woman's released from a psychiatric facility far from her homeland. These two damaged strangers cross paths in the mountains in winter and fall into a complex, intimate relationship, putting to the test their capacity to trust and heal. What it doesn't say is the style of the movie. It's image-based, it's not script-based, you get lots of people just doing stuff and it looks pretty. Yeah, yeah. It's quite uh, minimalist, I guess, in terms of its uh, level of dialogue and the complexity of plot, or lack thereof. Yeah. So it's a very human film. It's very much centred on these human beings and um, the intricacies and the subtleties of their inner journeys and the relationship that develops between these two damaged people when they cohabit in this crib in central Otago. It's the pace of certain movies. I can't even think of another one, but they wander about and just do their thing. Yeah. In front of the camera. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it's got a European or Eastern European vibe or a lot of like Latin American films and some Asian films. Stylistically, the film is not a quintessential Kiwi film. No. Quite a few people have said there's never really been a film made in this country in this style before. And um, I think that's cool. Yeah. That's worth seeing, I yeah. reckon. Yeah. I'd go out of my house to see a film I hadn't seen before <laughs> in New Zealand. It's at the other end from Die Hard too, though, wasn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's the other end of even something more local, like Gary of the Pacific. Yeah. It's completely different from that. Yeah. Um, and obviously that was intentional, not by accident. No. Well, yeah. this is 10 years in the making. Yeah, I mean, Why? that's a little bit overstated, to be frank. I had the idea in 2008, had day jobs, travelled, made short films, oh, okay. led a life. I mean, basically, it was a few years of screenwriting in between other stuff, then a few years of trying to get the finance, and then because of the unusual way in which we made it, i.e. on a low budget, largely crowdfunded, yeah. a lot of support from crew, it took longer than maybe some mm. films take. Yeah, yeah. okay. It's good publicity, isn't it? It's good for the marketing department to say it took 10 years in the making. <laughs> Sounds like Apollo 11. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that's really overstated a bit, but anyway. <laughs> and the crowdfunding side of things, that's amazing that it's a thing that we can do these days. Yeah. And that really, really helped. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was instrumental. We raised uh, around 125,000, about 470 donors. Um, that's Pretty damn good, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, in the sense that we broke records on... Well, it's the most ever raised for a New Zealand film on any crowdfunding platform. The fact that we did that for a film, as you say, that is not Die Hard, is not directed by Taika, I think that's really cool. And I think it speaks to the fact that there is a really passionate audience for this different kind of film, Um, if I can even use the word cinema. You know, we just sold out both our sessions at Wellington in four days at the festival. Yeah. Auckland's a bigger venue, so we need to, to push harder for that, but we will do that. Why do you think people clicked yeah? Clicked yeah. Click on donate. On donate. Um, I think, oh, I mean, I guess a variety they of reasons. They don't know what they're going to get. It's a, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess people, well, what I found is people are drawn to passionate, driven people, and I think that no matter whether you're a niche film or not, Mm. if you say, hey, we're going to make a kick-ass niche film, Mm. there's enough people with niche tastes that want to back that, particularly if you're saying we're going to make something in a style or in a tone that hasn't been made before. Mm. I think we've we've delivered to that and and the, the screening we had, an unofficial kind of investor major donor screening we had, you know, people... Really loved it, and that's awesome because we couldn't have made it without their backing. So that was really like affirming for mm. us. Affirming that also the economy of scale means that films like this will have an audience. Yeah, totally. I think so. I think like if you make anything with like a high level of craft and love and discipline, and you make it an excellent thing, no matter if it's Die Hard or if it's stray yeah then um there's going to be people that respond to that and um turn up when i was watching it uh, i could smell new zealand yeah yeah well someone said the other day it's, it's like a familiar new zealand setting but with a unique foreign lens because of the pace of the film because yeah. of the style um it's a little bit different a little bit unusual but then all of the settings and the locales and, and the landscapes are incredibly familiar to people yeah um, you tell me if I'm 
out of line here, but uh, I think you have an advantage in this style of film where you let things really go at their own sort of human pace without a lot of intense dialogue thrown in, you know, to and fro, mm. that you're not having to cast well-known actors. You can get people just to be a, yeah. a, a, a bit. Tell them don't act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess um, I haven't thought of it that but for, for, for way, but, yeah, I mean, Kieran, it was his first lead role in a feature film. Uh-huh. Young guy from Wellington ended up winning Best Actor at Moscow at the festival, the world premiere. Uh, I guess, yeah, I guess you don't need big names to make a film like this. Yeah. I was also thinking of the other people, not the oh, protagonists. I see, sorry. You've yeah. got people just like ordinary folk oh, off the street yeah, yeah. and so they don't act. Yeah, totally. So the guy, you know, the guy at the timber yard, the locals serving the beer at the, the, the bingo hall scene, they're all real people. Yeah. They're people we cast from the community, completely non-professional actors, and because they only have maybe two or three lines and it's largely a physical performance, mm. um, yeah, you can get you can cast real people from those communities who gave us huge amounts of support to open a gate and go on their paddock and film something or whatever it was. Like, we mm. got heaps of um, buy-in from the local communities and little towns we shot in down in central and north Otago. Yeah, and then we ended up casting some of them in the film and they give, the, particularly in the bingo hall scene, I think a real like authenticity to those scenes. Mm. Evening. Can I get a box of beer? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, our license doesn't allow that, but I can sell you a beer as long as you drink a beer. Here we are. That'll be $5, thanks. It's got a touch of the Graham Sydney's about it. Uh, the, the artist. Oh, right, yeah. 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 I, well, okay, well, let's tell people where it's shot. Okay, yeah, so... Well, we, once you cross the Cook Strait, where's it shot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we, we filmed a lot of it in Queenstown. Then Luggett, Cromwell, Alexandra, uh, Omarama, and the hero town of the film is Otamatata, which is in the Waitaki Valley, which only has like 123 people living in it. And it was a... Awesome town, and they and all those people in Onatata really got behind the film. Yeah, that was kick ass. Mm. But a lot of the crew are from Queenstown. All right. Oh, this is probably not of a lot of interest to people listening that haven't seen the movie, but I'm, we might get something out of it. My favorite bit in the movie is actually just visual. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which isn't surprising because a lot of it is visual. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. It's a, totally. Pretty, it's a pretty thing. Yeah, uh, thank you. He arrives at where are the, the hell cabin, he is? the crib. The yeah. cab, yeah. yeah. But you don't. This is before he arrives. There's this tiny little speck of light, uh, yeah, yeah, a yeah. tiny, tiny speck of light in a screen of black. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the hell's that. That's interesting. It's a firefly. Yeah. But you do follow the car yeah. all the way up, mm-hmm. and then it turns into a car. Yeah. He gets out, and it's all black except for the yeah. car. Then he turns the porch light on. Yeah, yeah. It's like doing your own art direction with what's there. Totally. So the directorial style and the cinematography style is to play things out largely in master shots, so there's not much coverage. The cinematographer and I, our ambition was, and it was a big ambition, was every frame is a painting. Yep. So there's a high level of orchestration and craft to each and every shot. So even though we had a low budget and we didn't have a huge amount of time, we made sure that everything we shot was beautifully done i guess you know like um and so it's the storytelling is through uh the cinematography is through the shots and through time and through pace rather than going 
wide shot, close up, close up, get it in the edit mm. and construct it there. Mm. It was a very highly orchestrated, preconceived, pre-visualised film where I knew that I wanted the shots to develop over time and details to be revealed and rather than just like shooting it the conventional way and just kind of letting the editor put it all together. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Every frame is a painting. I thought that of some cinema, some films. I reckon a razorhead, everyone's a painting or, mm, or, or, mm. or a Man Ray picture or something like that. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, Night of the Hunter. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, like a lot of the 80s, 90s films were a lot more fun and entertaining, but in terms of cinematography, I feel like 70s back, there was a lot more cinematography yeah. beauty and a real love, like care in each and every shot rather than just like the machine of filmmaking, doing things, painting by numbers, I guess, yeah, is, is not an approach I really, really care for. It just doesn't feel like there's much of a signature style or vision. There's no sense of a directorial vision, really. So I might as well ask you, who are your favourite directors and films that you admire? Ah, oh, so many, so many, but I guess, like, in terms of bodies of work... Stanley Kubrick, contemporary would be Kelly Reichardt, American independent filmmaker who made like Wendy and Lucy and Meeks Cutoff. I love her films. Similar style, I guess, to straight. Well, I would hope that's what I'm, you know, aiming yeah. for. And then Gus Van Sant, another American independent filmmaker. And Steve McQueen, who made Shame and Hunger. I love his films. And the Darden brothers, the Belgian guys who've once won a bunch of palm doors for films like The Sun and Two Days, One Night. You you have these influences and aspirations and so you just make the films that you like. You kind of make what you love. All right. Yeah. Yeah, good one. All right. Uh, Duncan Feenley, thank you very much. Um, the movie is Stray. You're the director. What are you doing next or are you working on something already? Yep, I'm writing a script which is a more, uh, well, it's a psychological thriller. So it has more plot, more dialogue, a bit more action. And that's set down in Southland. And at the title of the moment is Southland. And it's set in winter as well. So a bit further south, a bit more cold. Oh, cold enough in Alexandra. Yeah, 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 true. <laughs> Goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Dustin. Uh, it's on at the International Film Festival. Get yourself a program or go online and have a look about. Every single year, as many as 2,000 species are deemed extinct worldwide. But with over 100 different groups specializing in tracking species, the process we use to declare an animal extinct is random, uncoordinated, and ridiculous. I'm Forrest Galante. I'm a wildlife biologist, and my life's work is searching for animals that we've given up on. That's a little taster segment from the beginning of a show called Extinct or Alive. And it's hosted by, as you heard, the man who said, I'm Forrest Galante. Nice to know how to pronounce it now, if I've heard it live. It's a show that's starting, well, it has its New Zealand premiere on Animal Planet. Saturdays from the 21st of July, it's 9.30pm appointment. Trying to scour the world to find formerly thought extinct species. A fascinating thing, and I'm sure a lot of New Zealanders will think, oh, did he come here? Because we've got a few candidates as well. Anyway, at the end of the line, we've got him on a leash. Hello, Forrest Galante. Graham, how are you, buddy? I'm okay. Gosh, your line sounds dusty. Where are you, Mongolia? <laughs> Not at the moment. Just got home, actually. 
Okay, we'll see how we go. A little bit about your background, why you're interested in doing this thing. I know it's fascinating anyway, but your bio cred, I suppose, credentials. So here's how I like to describe it, Graham. You know when you're a kid and you flip over a rock and you see like an earthworm and you go, oh my God, that's so fascinating. Well, most people grow out of that, right? I grew worse. I wanted to study everything. I wanted to know how that earthworm ticked and what made it. And so... um, I've always been pretty one-tracked as a biologist. I had known from a very young age that I wanted to work with rare and elusive wildlife. Um, I grew up in Zimbabwe as the son of a safari business owner, and my grandfather has a legacy of discovering an extinct species as well. So I guess I'm, I'm kind of attached to it from all corners. Yeah, that's interesting. Your grandfather made that famous discovery. It was a, an animal thought to be extinct for a little bit more than a month or two, millions of years. And that's the rediscovery of that deep-sea fish, the coelacanth. That's correct. Yeah, he didn't actually find the very first coelacanth ever. What happened was he was on an expedition to the Comores, and in a local fish market, he saw this dinosaur-looking fish, you know, very quickly got it together and took it to the museum in Salisbury, and turned out it was the first ever whole non-rotten coelacanth that had ever been collected. You know, that was an animal believed to be extinct for, I believe, 600 million years that he found. I mean, you'd be fully aware as a biologist, that you're more likely to find an undiscovered species if you look for small things in your backyard than draining Loch Ness, right? (laughs) Certainly. (laughs) But it is megafauna that we are utterly fascinated about. With respect to our insect and invertebrate friends, that's kind of what you're doing around the world, isn't it? It's uh, things, hopefully, bigger than a bread box. Um, You know, for season one, it certainly is. Uh, We are looking for mostly megafauna, but the list is ex- extensive, you know, with, um, with something like 3,000 species going extinct every single year, there's certainly no shortage of animals to search for, and upon potential rediscovery, can then preserve and protect. So I look for leopards, wolves, Tasmanian tigers, giant penguin-like birds, big lemurs, all kinds of things. However, as you said, with respect to our invertebrate friends, I believe all animals deserve the same attention and respect. Yeah, okay, and I want to give people some reassurance, if you can, that it's not like you're hunting for Bigfoot and I imagine after 167 episodes we still just have people looking scared at night with a torch in front of their face going, oh, what's that? (laughs) I am not a cryptozoologist. Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster... You know, silly things made up in the night do not interest me. I'm a wildlife biologist. I deal with real animals and real wildlife. And I can certainly tell you that after 160 or whatever episodes of my show, we will not be doing that because on the very first episode, the season premiere, we will uncover some evidence and some very definitive video footage of something that has not been seen for 25 years. And I don't believe I can say much more than that. Okay. Eyewitness accounts are dodgy, to say the least. You get myth as well. What's good evidence for you? Um, Well, that's a great question. Eyewitness accounts are dodgy, unless they're from what I believe to be a reputable source. Now, call it profiling, call it what you will, but if it's someone in the middle of nowhere that I think drinks too much in the Sunday, I'm probably going to take their account with a grain of salt. Now, if it's a scientist or, say, a wildlife specialist or a ranger that's been working in a habitat for 25 years and stares me in the eye and says, I definitively saw this creature. I can name every single other animal in the park by Latin name, by all terminology. I can identify their tracks. Then I take heed. So um, 
you know, eyewitness accounts can be credible in my opinion, but there's a lot more to it than that. I look for a combination of habitat, prey abundance, and then couple that with eyewitness reports and then go in and look for the clues and figure out whether or not I believe the creature may still be there. Yeah, you have to use some biological smarts, I'm sure. Uh, if the animal could actually fit, could it find a niche in that environment? That's the first thing to really exactly. to find out before you start searching. That's exactly right. It, it, can the animal sustain life in this area? Are the resources in place? Is there enough prey species? Is there enough area for it to hide? You know, could the creature change its ecology or behavior so that, you know, a, say a leopard is now dwelling more in caves and coming out only at night to stay out of the persecution of people, things like that. So our show, you know, unlike Bigfoot hunting and, and Loch Ness Monster hunting, it's all about wildlife behavior and learning from the wildlife behavior and, and how wildlife may have adapted to seek out whether or not these creatures can still be there. I've been given a heads up that you actually do rediscover a formerly uh, thought of to be extinct <laughs> animal in this series. Can we let that cat out of the bag, so to speak? Yeah, good. So, yeah, so the, uh, the proverbial cat is out of the bag and the literal one is as well because we do indeed capture trail cameras, eight high-definition video footage of a leopard in Zanzibar, an animal believed to extinct for nearly 25 years. And, you know, on our survey, on a lot of tedious work, in the one park left on the island, we do capture this video footage. Oh, that's amazing. This has happened before. It's happened in New Zealand. We had an animal, quite a large one. It's a bird. Uh, was thought to be extinct, pretty much certain to be extinct, really. Had no one seen one in 50 years, and it was rediscovered. And that was... Uh, Takahai. There are possibilities right. for others as well. Our South Island Kokako is uh, declared extinct. Uh, nobody's saying really that it's 100% sure. There might be one or two, but they've got such a distinctive call. You'd think uh, there'd be some sightings or some good recordings. There are some indicators, though, that it may still be alive. And, and there are people very, very passionate about it. But I'm asking you, you should come to New Zealand. There are some very, very passionate people regarding this particular bird. Uh, they'd love to see you. Have you got any plans to come here? I don't currently have any plans to come there. That being said, I travel constantly. I'm always on expeditions, whether I have a camera team behind me or not, looking for rare, elusive, and indeed extinct wildlife. So I would love to come back to New Zealand and do some more. Okay. Well, once you've dis rediscovered a species, it's not like you've ticked the box and should just walk away and say, oh, that's good. What you've done is discover that there is an animal on the brink of extinction in some peril. And is it all hands on deck from there? Uh, it sure is. It's a ton of work. Believe it or not, it's more paperwork than anything else. And uh, my mission is to preserve and protect what's left. So once discovered, we work closely with local authorities, with government agencies, basically whoever it is that's in charge of that piece of habitat or that, that creature's well-being to try and implement conservation efforts to further that animal's existence. People become very, very passionate about particular species. Uh, they do become obsessed. Um, you, I suppose, would have run into some of these folk? Oh, certainly. And there are people that are indeed obsessed with these animals. And the truth is that, you know, I'm not the world authority on every single extinct animal 
on the planet. In fact, there are people who have dedicated their lives and science to these animals, and I generally meet up with them and try to have science their resources and combine efforts with them to search these creatures. And I can tell you that not only once I'm done with an expedition, but before I even get there, I do become obsessed with animals. Yeah. Sometimes people do have to let it go, though, in the end, or is it a good thing just to have that obsession even flying in the face of every possibility? No, look, it, it, it is both. You have to accept reality, right? If a creature is truly extinct, learn from that mistake, move forward, preserve what's left in the environment and ecosystem. The worst thing that we can do is wipe something off the face of the earth and not learn from that mistake. Yeah. And so, yes, it's okay to be obsessed with a creature. It's okay to be obsessed with it in literature, in the environment, whatever. But if it's gone permanently, which I believe some of these animals are, learn from that and, and protect what's left instead of just write it off and repeat the same mistake. Right. It was only in the 1800s that the world's largest gecko was um, uplifted, an example from it, in New Zealand. A couple of feet long. It's one of the most preposterous-looking things you could imagine. The only extant body of this thing, uh, the carcass, is in France. It was alive in the 1800s, a couple of feet long. No one's ever, ever seen another one nor found a bone of it or any evidence of it whatsoever. It just seems too preposterous. It doesn't ring true to me. Given your experience, what do you reckon? Look, it's fascinating, isn't it, that someone would find a creature like that. What that tells me is if that gecko was found in the 1800s, that animal was on the way out, you know, regardless of human influence. It was at the brink of extinction, and perhaps we were the driving force that took care of it, but regardless, the creature was there. I mean, there's, there's a specimen. It was a living creature. It's gone now, whether it somehow got misplaced in New Zealand or some strange combination of bones that washed up. I really couldn't tell. But what I will say is when an animal is proven to have been there and they only find one ever, one remnant of it, it means that odds are that creature was very elusive and already on the brink of extinction. Yeah, and they can live to phenomenal ages too. Uh, so mm -hmm. it might have been the last one for the last 70 years. Who knows? But it's a exactly. fascinating thing. Okay, in this program, I'm sure it must provide us with a lot of tantalising stuff so close but so far away. Of those that haven't been rediscovered, which particular species do you think fit that category the closest to, uh, or the ones with the most likelihood, a good possibility that maybe just, you know, we're really so close? There's a number of these animals. Um, I have identified 25 most wanted creatures. And some of them, I believe, are still there. There's actually an extinct shark species called the Pondicherry shark that hasn't been seen since the 70s in Sri Lanka, and it ranges all the way to New Guinea. You know, I believe that creature is still out there in small populations. Uh, there's a bullneck seahorse from Australia that I think would still be there. Uh, the pink-headed duck from India. I mean, the list is pretty extensive of these creatures that we have written off, but continual reported sightings are coming in year after year. Although there are repeated sightings, and reports of these animals being extant, next to no one is looking for them. Right, and that's your job. Okay, most famous, I suppose, is the Tasmanian tiger. We know about it because we're next door. Likelihood, do you think of that? And is that on your list of things that you're looking for in this series? 
The thylacine is like my first obsession. I've been to Tasmania to search for it. Australia is so big and so expansive, and there's so much left of it. My gut feeling is yes, it could still be out there. And um, I find some interesting evidence while I'm in uh, far north Queensland that leads me to believe, even though I may not have found the creature, that it could still be there. All right. And that's one where passions run very high, whether it's alive or whether it's not. I'm sure there's been a fight in a Tasmanian pub over it. Okay. I'm sure of it. Yeah. Forrest Galante, thank you very much for your time. He's the host of Extinct or Alive. Uh, I think the title says it all, really. The premiere, just a reminder, it's Saturdays from the 21st of July, 9.30pm, and you can find it on the Animal Planet. A study published this week in the prestigious Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and very much to do with New Zealand's natural history uh, is giving us a window onto New Zealand's lost past. Our paleontologists do a tremendous job. May I take a hat off to Alan Tennyson, um, who's done astounding work with our deeper history. But this uh, new study shows um, it's a bit of a different angle on finding out what New Zealand was like. Like our lost world, early human um, contact, which is not that long ago, uh, globally, about 750 years ago. But what what's the deal is, is um, like finding some soup and then having a look at what the DNA is in there and finding out what it's made of, having a look at middens and things like this, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. Enough from me. Uh, one of the people behind the study is uh, Nick... Rawlins from the Otago Paleogenetics Lab, uh, Department of Zoology at Otago, and uh, he'll tell us a little bit about this and the fascinating window, uh, what we can see through it. Hello, Nick. Hello. Yeah, um, this particular study, just first of all, it's um, it's not just New Zealand, right? This is association with uh, Perth universities as well? Uh, yeah, so the study was led by a um, Kiwi from Christchurch, Mike Bunce, who runs a lab at Curtin University in Perth and they approached us and uh, Alan Tennyson and Paul Schofield at Canterbury Museum and colleagues here to help contribute to the study. Okay, um, and what did you poke into to get the DNA from and what does it tell you that we might not have seen otherwise and why? So when we reconstruct what New Zealand was like before uh, humans arrived is invariably we're dealing with bones you can identify. So you can pick up a mower bone, look at the bumps on the bones, go, well, I know it's a mower, I know it's a heavy-footed mower. Um, but the vast majority of all of uh, the bones you find in fossil and archaeological midden sites are all fragments. They're completely unidentifiable. It's like uh, my toddler has taken puzzle pieces, chewed them up, spat them out, and I'm left going, well, what's that and where does it go? Right, as good as you can do is say, it's a bone. Yeah, and so when we've reconstructed this lost world of New Zealand, it's like a paint-by-numbers version of the Sistine Chapel ceiling that hasn't been coloured in. There's the broad picture, but we're missing all the details. And so we can go to these um, what we call frag bags full of all of these fragments. We can grind all of the fragments up, um, extract the, out the DNA, and you get this DNA soup, as you were saying, and we uh, photocopy this genetic barcode up to workable concentrations and then we can sequence every single barcode in that soup and work out what all the different animals are uh, in those frag bags. Right. Uh, you can pair away that DNA. That's, yeah. Is this new technology? 
Um, the technology has been around for a few years and it's the same approach that Neil Gemmell from the anatomy department here is using on Loch Ness, which is just another mixed sample. In that case, it's uh, water from Loch Ness and you're getting DNA from all the animal detritus and plant detritus that's in the, in the water. We're, we're just using it for um, a new purpose to really start looking at what's in these um, frag bags that uh, take up a lot of space on uh, museum shelves and curators have thankfully kept them all over right. the years. Right, okay. And so a, a, a rich vein to go and have a sniff of what the DNA is in there yeah. would, would be the middens. Mm. Okay, are these new middens you're looking in or old um, um, digs and you're looking in their uh, specimen bags? We have looked at a combination of um, old digs um, that have been sitting in museum collections, um, new excavations like the one that we did at uh, Awamoa, which is just south of Omaru near the Old Bones Backpackers. That's a early Maori um, moa hunter site. Mm -hmm. And in collaboration with archaeologists here at Otago, is, um, we were looking at frag bags from a whole lot of sites that they've excavated um, around the country as well. Okay, so what it tells us is the diet of Maori, but you can also extrapolate other information um, from that, like how many lineages of species, mm. mobility of people, that, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. So we've managed to fill in all of that detail um, in that paint-by-numbers version of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And we're, um, when we start looking at all of the DNA from the frag bags from um, pre-human fossil sites going back 20,000 years, and these uh, Maori middens, what we can actually find out is uh, a lot of surprises and all the nuances that um, we're missing. So a, a couple of the, the good examples I can think of is kākāpō. Previously, it's been thought that um, Maori didn't have an impact of ka on kākāpō. You weren't finding them in middens, um, and the bigger impact was uh, Europeans. And what we find is that when... Um, Polynesians arrived in New Zealand. There were 10 lineages of kākāpō here. There was a North Island kākāpō that was genetically distinct to the South Island kākāpō, and they got hit um, quite badly when uh, Polynesians arrived. We found their remains of middens, and then they got um, the double whammy when Europeans arrived as well. Right, right. And uh, were they being um, exploited, eaten? Uh, is, is that the reason they got hit, or is it the cargo, like the Kuri and the Polynesian rat as, as well? A, it would have been a combination of um, uh, hunting and being eaten, predation by Kiori and Kuri, but also um, habitat destruction with uh, uh, Polynesian burning of the forest that occurred very quickly, especially in the east and south island after... Um, Polynesians arrived. Yeah, that was a massive event, wasn't it? It mm. goes underestimated how exactly how large and how quickly that happened. Yeah. Um, and the kākāpō, uh, and are you sitting down yeah. fact, it used to be yeah. New Zealand's third most abundant and common bird. Yeah, they were. We've uh, gone to uh, collections in Canterbury Museum and in some sites there's just hundreds and hundreds of um, Kākāpō, they were just running riot around New Zealand um, at the time Polynesians arrived, and mm. very, very common. So you would have had, uh, you could have stood in the hill country behind Dunedin here or 
um, up the back of Nelson. You just would have heard Kakapo booming away. Yeah. Okay. And other interesting finds that we wouldn't have known uh, other than uh, doing this sort of analysis. Uh, we've got eels and whales and things like yeah. that. So with the eels, um, we've always known that eels are vitally important to Māori as a, as a food source. Um, there are these classic photos you can see on the Ta'ara online encyclopedia of um, eels being um, dried on wooden racks uh, on Banks Peninsula, but we've never actually found their bones in uh, archaeological sites. And mm. it, they're just so fragile and they don't preserve, and you get that with a lot of fish bone. And so when we start looking at the eel bone and the fish bone, what we're actually beginning to find out is about the seasonality and um, movement patterns and trading. But we also find when you look at the fish is the local fish and chip shop was very important. Um, Maori fished locally. Yeah. Um, so it was local, local fish. You didn't go down the road to um, the other town's fish and chip shop. Yeah. Um, but with the whales, um, whale bone, as you'll know, is quite porous, except um, killer whale bones, which are really, really dense like meteorites. Yeah. Um, and they don't preserve that well. Uh, and if you've got a big beached, um, like a southern right whale or a fin whale that we discovered um, in these frag bags, you're not going to be carting back all of the bones um, to your village. And so what we've found is this whole suite of um, uh, cetaceans. Um, we've got dolphins, cuvier's beaked whale, fin whale, killer whale, um, southern right whale. And so what we're beginning to think now is that... Um, Māori may have actively hunted dolphins and small um, whales. We've got one site we did uh, the DNA from Reekless in Christchurch where we found dolphins, killer whale and Cuvier's beaked whale in the same site along with bone harpoon heads. And the flip side is we actually think the large whales, they were scavenging um, beached um, uh, animals and then taking off bits that would have bits of bone in them back to uh, their village to eat. Yeah. Oh, that would be a festival of um, of a barbecue, wouldn't it? Mm, it would be. Yeah. Uh, can you get DNA from anything that's not bone in the middens? Is is you know um, just like can, a mess? Yeah. We um, we can get DNA from moa eggshell um, that oh. preserves. Um, uh, very well, and there was one study done by colleagues of ours um, on a umu a Maori oven at Waira Bar that found upwards of 50 or 60 moa eggs in this one oven. Mm -hmm. um, but we can also start getting DNA out of uh, moa feathers, um, uh, desiccated moa poo, which we call coprolites. The easiest way to explain those is think of a half-melted Cambry picnic bar. Mm. Um, is what I tell the kids. But we can also get um, DNA out of the sediment. So it could be uh, uh, DNA from all the fats and the oils that have leached out of um, marine mammals like seals and sea lions. And we had elephant seals breeding here in the whales. Oh, okay. So a very different picture. And, and these middens, can you give me an indication of what era they belong to? I mean, they've got to be somewhere between now and 750 mm. years ago. So the majority of the middens we looked at were um, from the early Maori period. So you're looking at roughly 1280, 1300 AD to about 
1450, 1500. Okay. Um, and uh, few of the middens are, are late Maori, so you're looking about um, uh, 16, 1700s up to the time of the Europe into European uh, arrival during the 1800s. And they would paint a very different picture, wouldn't they? They'd tell you something. Yeah, they, they do. We're, we're looking at um, uh, very different diets. So you, you've lost all the moa, you've lost all the um, the, the big uh, sea lions and elephant seals. You, you're, you're dealing with an ecosystem that doesn't have any of the big animals um, left. And with um, other research we've been doing, you've shifted uh, your diet from uh, megafauna, so big animal dominated, to uh, fish and small birds and more mm. shellfish um, dominated. Yes, it's something I think is rather unappreciated. We just don't think of it in the north that there would have been seals and sea lions and sea mm. leopards just swarming all over the place. That's their natural home. We just think, yeah. oh, it's it, it, seals, they only, uh, seals and sea lions and elephant seals, they only like it down the south. It's mm. not the case. No, it's not the case. We had... Um, uh, work our lab has been doing is that we had three genetic uh, lineages of sea lions at the time of uh, Polynesian arrival. There was one in the Chatham Islands that yeah. went extinct shortly after the Moriori arrived. Um, we had one in New Zealand, the true New Zealand sea lion, um, and then we had one down the Subantarctic Islands, which we call Hooker's sea lion. It's the sea lion that's here now. And the one in New Zealand was spread from bottom of Stewart Island right up the top of the North Island. And I was recently up um, the very top with Nati Kuri on a bioblitz and we were excavating um, uh, sea lion pups and adults from uh, the Tom Bowling Bay sand dunes. So up they were, in Northland? Yeah, they were breeding um, all through Northland. There were um, southern elephant seals at Hohora um, in Northland as well. They were just everywhere. And it, it didn't take much for them to go extinct. The, the modelling we've done suggests that um, given human arrival time and extinction times and uh, hu what you'd expect human uh, population growth to be, is if you uh, hunt, if you if, if Maori ate more than half a sea lion per person per year, they would all be extinct within 200 years. So you, That's you some interesting modelling, mm. isn't it? You don't need to hunt many to cause extinctions. So that would inform how hookers, the only one remaining, um, are faring today. They look yeah. okay, but they might be on a precipice as far as a viable population goes. Yeah, if you, um, what, we, we flipped the modelling on its head in that case and we actually started looking at um, uh, how much immortality you would need in the current population to cause them to go extinct. Right. And it turns out that um, unless the... Um, squid fishery actually uh, starts mitigating all of the bycatch and everything um, that happens as you're looking at the extinction of um, uh, hooker's sea line. Mm. It's amazing how um, populations that seem abundant can mm. just collapse. I'm just mm. thinking of the passenger pigeon yeah. and its billions in the USA mm. became extinct without too much of an effort. Yeah, the great hawk's another one. Ah, Okay. It, yep. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't take much um, to cause these extinctions because you're you're looking at um, uh, species that we call case selected. They're, they're slow breeding, um, take a long time to mature, and so as long as you hunt enough, that the mortality rate 
outstrips the, the reproduction rate is you're, you're basically going to go into what we call an extinction vortex. Mm. Yeah. If it goes backwards, it's an, mm. in a line that's going to point towards extinction in the end. Yeah. Just like if people only had two kids each, we would go extinct <laughs> in a few generations anyway. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, to, when you get this DNA, in order to identify what particular species it is, you have to have something to match it with. Do yeah. you end up with a bag full of we-don't-know DNA that may point to animals that were endemic here that we don't know about that went extinct? We, we do. We, um, we, we get all our DNA sequences and we have to compare them against... Um, uh, databases and so one of the biggest databases in the world is one called GeneBank and we can submit our DNA sequences online as a query and it will compare it against this huge database of everything that's in there. Mm. But our matches are only as good as what's in the database and quite a few times we would come up to uh, a match with a raptor and we'd have to go and get a Haas eagle DNA extract um, to actually uh, sequence that and then so we could match the DNA sequence in our, in our DNA extraction suit from the frag bag to the eagle. We were doing that with um, New Zealand's lost frogs that we got the first ancient DNA sequences out of in this project. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do end up with the unknown. We've got in the, uh, the paper an unknown stalk. Uh, it doesn't mean we had a stalk. It just means that um, the closest match on the database was, is, is a stalk. But there are so many extinct New Zealand birds and animals that haven't had their DNA sequenced that in yeah. um, five, ten years you could take our data, re, um, uh, put it back through the database and you'd come up with a whole lot more um, uh, species that we didn't know about that were in middens or um, increased geographic distribution of other species. Yeah, or even in a forgotten bag of stuff mm. in a museum somewhere. Now we can look into it and find out what was there. Yeah. And there's, you hear time and time again of new species being discovered lying on museum shelves that have been there 50, 100 years that no one's known about. Um, And we're getting queries now from archaeologists all around New Zealand and contract archaeologists who are really interested in um, this technology to get a a really quick, in-depth view of what's actually in their sites and how does it relate to what they can um, see and hold in their hand. Mm. Dr. Nick Rawlins, Otago Paleogenetics Lab. Fascinating stuff, and we get a better and I better of an idea, a better idea of what this place used to be like not that long ago. Um, and thank you very much. Congratulations on your research.